afternoon and welcome to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Over the next hour, you'll learn how to live from your true self through all of life's twists and turns. And you'll be challenged to lean into the mysteries of life to find your own deepest wisdom. Now, here's your host, Andrea Matthews. Hi, welcome to the Authentic Living Show. We're going to be talking today about John Pavlovich's book, um, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, Finding a Faith That Makes Us Better Humans. So you want to be here for this. I think John's work is extremely important right now in today's, in today's world. So he's coming to the show today to remind us that of the 11th commandment, thou shalt not be horrible. He wants us to imagine what the world would look like if we all obeyed that command. He reminds us that the way we treat others is the most tangible and meaningful expression of our belief system. And he's come here today to talk about his book, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, Finding a Faith That Makes Us Better Humans. In today's world, where we see professed Christians carrying signs with Bible verses on them into the fray of an insurrection, one has to wonder what's happening to Christianity. John is going to tell us both what is happening and what we can do about it. Be here for this. So let me tell you a little bit about John. He's the author of the new book, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, Finding a Faith That Makes Us Better Humans by Westminster John Ox. John Pavlovitz is a pastor, a writer, and an activist from Wake Forest, North Carolina. He spent nearly three decades teaching, studying, dissecting, deconstructing, and reconstructing the Christian faith. Committed to equality, diversity, and justice, John aims to teach a single elemental truth. That is, faith as a supernatural being should not make you should should make you into a better human being. His blog, Stuff That Needs to Be Said, recently surpassed one of a hundred million views, and his previous book, including previous books, excuse me, include a bigger table, hope, and other superpowers, and love. So, John, welcome to the Authentic Living Show. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Andrea. It's so nice to be with you today. All right. Well, before we go any further, I know I've asked you about this before we came on air, but I want to talk to you a little bit about the brain surgery that you had recently, because I know that that's been a a big, big deal. And I wanted to see if you wanted to update our listeners on how you're doing. I am doing very well. We are eight weeks out now and um, my body's healing wonderfully. And we've just been seeing progress Every day, just getting, you know, feeling better and better and to the point now where sometimes I even forget that I had the surgery and we're just waiting on some blood work that's going to tell us if they got all the tumor. But I feel, you know, physically well and really fortunate and from the beginning have just, you know, felt like this was going to be a wonderful experience either way. And it, and it really has been. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Well, we're so glad that you're still kicking among us and and have so much still to offer us uh, as a community. Thank you. So I I know there's a story behind, you know, how you came to the understanding of this God of love that must be different from what other people call God and what you call sometimes in some of your blogs, you call it the MAGA God. Uh, so how did you come to understand this God of love who's so different from what you call MAGA God? I, I think what you see in a lot, probably the, the worst parts of organized religion, it tends to leverage fear 
and it tends to, you know, work around prejudice and phobia and, uh, you know, the, the differences in people. And I think that's what I see in that sort of what I call the MAGA God is, is a God that, that separates, that, that causes people to feel enmity toward one another, that is a competitive kind of faith that needs sort of an adversary. And my understanding of God would be that anything that is made of whatever God is, um, it's going to be it's something that invites, that pulls together. It's going to be something that makes community stronger and more diverse. And so that's always what I'm in search of. It's just how to live, whether you're a person of faith or not, how to live from a place of greater empathy. Right. So why didn't you get caught up in the MAGA movement? What, what, what's, you know, the, not just the MAGA movement that's more recent, but the whole traditional idea of God as a separate, separatist rather than a, a, a person of oneness or a being of oneness. What, what's different about you that made you understand this God differently? It's, it's really, Andrea, really difficult sometimes to figure that out. I, I always, because I was in the church with a lot of, of the people who have sort of moved in the other direction, and I was trying to figure out, like, what was it that changed for me? And part of it was I got better stories. I tell people that as I grew, I was in communities of diversity where maybe they have been sheltered in, in a place for their whole lives, you know, geographically. So when I got better stories, those stories started to change me. And I started to see people, you know, whether they were Muslim people or they were atheists or LGBTQ people, I didn't see them through the lens of that fearful angry, vengeful God. I saw them through the lens of their humanity. And uh, so I think that's one of the things. The more you get those truer stories about people, the more the world opens up and the less fear there is there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The more, yes, absolutely. Totally agree with that. I'll give you a big amen on that. So what is the difference then between experiencing God and dogma? I think, you know, dogma and beliefs are, are sort of a theoretical, what, what, what we might think we believe. And I think what we do is we, we have to decide, how do I live? And the practicing of that, those beliefs, they have to be reflected in the trenches of our daily lives when our lives rub up against other people. And I ask people all the time, I want you to look at my life. I tell them, I want you to look at my life and Tell me what you think I believe based on how I treat you. I want you to try to retrofit my belief system based on my, how, I, how I operate in the world. And I think so many people of faith are preoccupied with, what they, with believing the right things, and they don't, they don't think so much about how are people being impacted by my life? What are the ripples of my existence? Yeah, so that's a big difference there. Just it's not it's not really belief. It's it's what's going on in your heart and your actions. It, it, it's got to be everything. The best theology is on, is relational to me. It's you know that's that's the only way it works. I can have all these ideas in my head, or I can have all these belief systems organized, but it's really going to be about the way that I connect with other lives that really is going to tell what I actually believe. Yes. Well, I loved your chapter, Oh Hell No. Um, and in that, you, quote, you said this, you said, I just do not have peace with a creator who would give us life and force us to spend much of that life looking for a spiritual needle in a haystack to avoid torture for eternity in the name of fierce love. 
So can you say more about that? Because that's one of those foundational kind of uh, ideas that you have that's very, very different from what you call the MAGA Christians. I think when I started to realize that was even in the teachings of Jesus, I was, I was reading Jesus teaching his, his students that the way you forgive, you forgive relentlessly. Every time someone asks you earnestly for forgiveness, you need to provide it. And the idea of hell was, was God not living to that standard that, was, that there was reach a point where God's compassion was saturated and then God would no longer accept you. And that seemed contrary to the teachings of Jesus. And the more I, I thought about the idea of God being love, well, then God is always going to out-forgive us and out-love us and out-welcome us. And so there has to be something about this God that, that the idea of hell for me was incompatible with that because that ran counter to the greatest instincts that I have as a father, for example. You know, I grew up hearing of God as father and and yet I have this love for my son where I couldn't imagine him doing anything where I would write him off for good. And the idea of hell is, is, is exactly that. And the tricky part about hell is once you believe in the idea of hell, then you have to decide who goes in, how do they go in. And most of the time we, we decide it's going to be other people and not us. And so it's a thing we weaponize really easily. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's easy to pat, point that finger at somebody else and say, you're going to hell, not so much for ourselves. Yeah. Exactly. So what do you think is going on? What, what's happening to Christianity in America today? I think you see a couple things happening. What you, what you see is a lot of people who are more progressive, they're not finding home in church anymore. And so many of them, they're leaving the building. So they're not there for an hour on Sunday. They're still, you know, they still have spiritual pursuits. I'm sure so many people listening right now, they, they have a desire to be part of deep community and they, and they have spiritual pursuits that, that they can't find a place that they can comfortably work those out in. And I think so those people are, are leaving the church. I think you're seeing a group of people who might be more conservative and in that sort of fearful, you know, theology that we talk about, they're, they're more entrenched in the building. And so what you're seeing is an expression of, of religion, especially in America, that tends to be dominated by exclusion. Um, and so the work that I do is always trying to use the blog and virtual community to bring people together so let it be a hub for people who are still have this vibrant spiritual life but don't find a place where they feel comfortable yeah i I'm, and what did we do to make that happen what what is it how did it evolve into this i i think what happened is as we got further and further along in history then generations who had technology they were able to see the world whereas you know Decades ago, we didn't have that. So I think you have people who are more aware of different cultures and different belief systems. And I think their they're, younger generations are not tolerating the kind of bigotry that they're seeing in the church. And I think gradually they've just pulled away from, from organized religion because of the toxicity. And I think there's just a way of life that, you know, the rhythm of life used to be decades ago. The, the church was the hub of the community, and it was the place where people gathered. And I think we have a decentralized, you know, community now. And so we're all over the place. We're in our homes, and we're on our phones. And I, so I think that's just, we've 
we've decentralized that thing. And um, so we're all kind of floating out here trying to figure out where, where we belong. Yeah. Yeah, and that old paradigm just doesn't fit anymore with this, with the diverse culture, does it? No, and it, it also doesn't fit for people who are probably like the people who are listening to this show who are who really want to learn other people's perspectives and leave space for the, their convictions. And, and that doesn't lend itself to a building where you say, this is what we believe, because there's, there's room in, on, where, you know, where we travel, there's room for difference. And I think that it's difficult to create a community around that openness. Um, we've been talking about, you know, building communities here in Raleigh in the North Carolina area where I am. And just last night we were saying, well, what, what do you build it around? Because you know what you don't want it to be. And then how can you gather people around something else? And for me, it's always going to be about human beings and caring for them and the needs of people around you. It's going to be built on relationships. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you say that you have semi-retired from being a theological know-it-all. And there's grief in letting go of the old ways of thinking and we have to know. Isn't that one of the benefits of the MAGA version of Christianity that we think we know and that certainty is our total security? It is. I mean, doing the work that I had done for years as a you know, mega church pastor, surety was, was the thing that I had. It was, it was the idea of standing before people and being certain about everything I believed. And I came to realize that that wasn't an honest position, that we all, if we're honest, we all carry these doubts and we're all not sure of certain things. And I wanted to be a part of communities where you could doubt and you could question because the heart of all of this for me is that if God is whoever we believe God is, then God can handle our doubts, our vacillation, our disagreements. And I think communities built on being certain really just, they're not honest communities um, because people when I started to write about my doubts or I started to, to, to preach my doubts, I found there were so many people in my community, my local community who were waiting for me to give them permission to, to question. And, and that's the other thing. I think ministers and churches don't give people permission to be just authentic human beings. Yeah, I agree with that. And there's a, there's a lot of, one of the things that I've discovered through my own journey, which is uh, could could possibly be similar to yours, um, is that uh, there's just a lot of judgment even within the church. So that what the people they're told the people in the church are told not to go outside the church for comfort and succor because those are non-believers and we're not supposed to be yoked to non-believers. Right. And so they have to go to the people in the church for support and succor, but they can't go to them because they're afraid of being judged. So they have to take their that's, journey alone. That's so true. And what I found was that I was, I was partially honest as a minister. I, I edited myself because I said, oh, I can share this. I can be this honest. But if I share this, well, that might keep me at, put me at the periphery of the community. So I started to edit myself. And then I began to realize that everyone was doing that. And so you have these, you know, conspiracy of pretending, I call it, where everyone's just a little bit less than fully authentic and no one feels. And if, if spiritual community should be anything, it should be the place where we can exhale, where we can be our truest selves. And until that's 
it can happen, we're doing a disservice to the people who gather. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're taught that Christianity is supposed to be a place of comfort and love and support, but it's not turning out to be that for so many people that are in there. There's just so much fear of judgment that they can't find that comfort. Right. And I, I would tell people that organized religion is like organized crime in a lot of ways. Like you, when you're in the family, you know, you're really well loved, but the minute you deviate and the minute that you are out, you push to the periphery or you pushed outside, it becomes very adversarial to you. So when I began to express my doubts uh, as a minister, it, was, it wasn't only that I was no longer welcome, but there, I was looked at as something dangerous or something um, immoral. And that's the other part about this. When you teach people that they have to be right and they have to be righteous, then the moment that you feel someone differs, that feels like something that is a threat. And that's just a sad way to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it takes up that we-they dichotomy thing that just is so hard and separating. All right, well, we're yes. going to take a break now. And so we'll be back in just a few minutes with more from John Pavlovitz on his book, Don't Be a Jerk. Be right back. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Broaden your mind. Open your heart for a greater understanding of how to express your pure and authentic nature. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Simron, author, publisher, and life mentor, broadens minds and opens hearts to a greater understanding of life, consciousness, and humanity. 1111 Talk Radio is every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. 1111 Talk Radio. You are not on a journey. You are the journey. You are experience experiencing itself. On Living Strong, the flip side of adversity, Dr. Veerdra Jackson presents stories and powerful guest experts from business, health, relationships, and faith. Every story has its flip side. And we are here to delve into the story and challenge you to view what has kept you in a singular mindset and turn it into the flip side. When you can effectively do that, you'll experience necessary growth. Tune in live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now toll free 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthews.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back talking today to John Pavlovitz about his book, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, Finding a Faith That Makes Us Better Humans. And we've been talking so far about uh, how he came to this place of understanding and, and been talking about what's happening to Christianity in America today. So I want to move on now and ask, 
What is your take, John, on how it is that evangelicals can really believe that Jesus would support a religion of hostility, even hate and separation, when he spoke so much of love and said that was our only law? Well, Andrea, I think we all have a story that we tell ourselves, and we do a lot to make sure that that story stays intact. And if you grew up with a, with a God who hated LGBTQ people or was threatened by, by Muslims or atheists, you need that story to be true, and you'll rationalize it in any way that you, that you need to. And I think what happens is people will pick and choose parts of the Bible, and usually they'll use the Old Testament idea of God, and they can superimpose their fears and prejudices and phobias on that idea of God in a larger sense. But to take the teachings of Jesus, it's really hard to twist those into something that is hostile to immigrants or to the poor. And, and so I think they rarely use the words of Jesus and, and manipulate those. It's more just the idea of God. And they, you know, if they take in the same media and they're hearing the same pastors, over decades, that just becomes normal. It doesn't even occur to them. And a lot of times what I'm trying to do is, is just give people, splash some cold water on them and say, this is actually, these are the teachings that your faith tradition is based on. Um, but it's something that they're not hearing that much of. Yeah, and, it's, and, and, and the truth is that Christianity is based on the teachings of Jesus, not so much the Old Testament, when he, he, he said he came to fulfill the law. And, uh, and, and so he, he showed us that fulfillment with the, the law of love, and yet right, they still right. quote the Old Testament instead of the New. And, it's, and, when, and a lot of times what you're seeing in American Christianity is something that would would be antithetical to Jesus of the scriptures. You know, it is hostile to people of darker skin. It is hostile to immigrants. It is hostile to non-Americans, to people who want to share resources. And so over and over again, you, what you see is a, is a mission drift of something that began in this beautiful place, and over time and distance, it has just evolved into something else. And that's the difficult part, because there are many people listening who are followers of Jesus. They may not call themselves Christian, but they aspire to those teachings, and they're looking at the Christian church and saying, well, these aren't even the same thing, and I I have no place there. Mm. Absolutely. So you mentioned the LGBTQ plus population. Uh, What is it about that particular population that has the Christian community so stirred up against it? I think we we all tend to, when we're fearful, we need someone to be the enemy. And I think the LGBTQ plus community has been a convenient enemy for that particular group of, of Christians, uh, leaders who, are, who want to leverage that fear. And so they'll use sexuality because it's the, it's the most threatening sometimes to people. Um, I, I just think it's one of the last acceptable prejudices that the church allows because the church will hide behind a couple of scriptures and then allow people to feel righteous and still be cruel to other human beings. And that's what I'm, I'm continually trying to lift up the, the idea of who Jesus was and ask Christian, you know, Christians, if LGBTQ people are experiencing the love of that God through them. And in most cases, they're not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it and it, it feels 
um, the word is hostile. It just feels hostile. And and it's really it's just a destructive idea. You know, for years I've worked with teenagers, so middle and high school students, and they're in the most tumultuous time of their lives anyway, or they're in adolescence. And then to feel as though not only is the church against them, but they begin to feel LGBTQ teenagers that God is against them. And that's a terrible weight for, for young people to carry. And it's the reason why, so, you know, the, the, the self-harm and the depression is so much higher in LGBTQ teenagers than in those who are not. And that to me has been the tragedy of seeing this, this religion that is, you know, based on a healing, loving, caregiver Jesus and then see so many people who are damaged in his name. Yeah. And I think it comes from a faulty idea of, uh, of what it means to be, uh, what love is all about. I mean, we see parents who are willing to, you know, make their children homeless in order to, uh, keep doing this thing about Christianity, the MAGA Christianity. They, they're willing to kick their children out of their home and call that love. Exactly. And it's, it, it, I've been on the front lines of, of those conversations and being with families who are going through it. And I've been you know, working for years with a group called the Mama Bears, and they're a group of Christian moms of LGBTQ Christians. And they started you know, a Facebook group, and it grew to tens of thousands. And some of these you know, women and, are in a certain theology still. They still have definite, you know, moral issues with their children's sexuality, but they're working on saving the relationship and showing love to their children. And that's a huge part of it. You're right. Some people inexplicably could live with a child their whole lives and then choose a, the, the, uh, the idea of God. And, and I, I don't find anything, you know, that's something I, I fight against all the time because I want people to understand what, it, what an honor it is to have a child and then to, to give them love. You are, that's your responsibility to protect. And when you see parents doing the opposite in the name of a God of love, you can't connect those dots. It's just a frustrating thing to deal with. Yeah, I see a real vast difference uh, between morality and spirituality. Uh, can mm-hmm. you can you speak to that a little bit? The difference between morality and spirituality. I, I think morality. From, from what I find is that people, when they speak about morals, they're usually taking their belief system and superimposing it on someone else, and saying that you're the way that you operate in the world is not up to a standard that I'm setting. Um, you know, my spirituality is, is is going to try to elevate me to to be a more compassionate person, a more generous person, a more patient person. So I, I may have moral beliefs, but, you know, years ago I had Tony Campolo say that Jesus had principles, but he never lost the people in front of him. And so he, he, had, he had principles, but the people were the most important at the end of the day. And that's kind of how I see morality and spirituality differing. I don't want to have a belief system that, that ignores the humanity in my path. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so hard to put those two things together. Okay, can you talk a little bit about nationalism, what it means and its place in the evangelical proposal regarding the nature of Christianity? Well, I think nationalism 
what what we see in the faith that in the religion that we're talking about this sort of toxic insular religion is that it shrinks the world down so that it's just about America. You know, the idea of America first, it isn't just a tagline. It's, it's genuinely what some people believe that, that even though the scriptures say, you know, for God so loved the world, and yet they can say America first in the same breath. And I think nationalism just, just focuses on what it means to be a, a white American. And then that that's somehow the, the total of, of God's creation and I am always hoping that we can expand the idea that if God does so love the world and God made all that there is, if, if God's hand is in all of that, then diversity should be something we welcome, that we should want to learn more about people and the planet. We should want to protect all of those things. And, and nationalism just gives you, a, it, it turns religion into a gated community of just like people. And I just love the difference in the world. I think anyone who is truly spiritual, um, that's how they operate. They're wide open to the world rather than they don't live with a, with a closed, you know, closed fist toward the world. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's a good way of saying that. So you talk in the book about making God in our own image. How do we do that? And what impact does that have on faith and our relationship with others? I think anyone who believes in a higher power of any kind, we, we tend to want to think that that higher power, that God, that creator, that divinity, it, re- it resembles us um, because we want to feel like we're, we believe the right things and we do the right things and that our instincts are good. And that's the difficult part because everyone listening right now, and whether they're religious or not, or whether they're conservative or progressive, everyone thinks they're getting it right. And no one thinks that they're, you know, intentionally doing damage. And so I think what we have is do we have to be honest about the idea of belief and say, how much of myself am I bringing to this belief system? How much am I superimposing my personality, um, my preferences on God? And I'm always checking that and against my, I'm always looking at my life and saying, well, what if this could be the baggage that I brought to this thing? Yeah. Yeah, that's a real important question to ask. Okay, so that that old mantra, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it, falls far short of an experience of God as a journey into mystery and love. You said in the book that it might be better to admit that we don't always understand what it is that we've read in the Bible and to talk about it together. Why can't we just take it all at face value and take it all literally? What's wrong with that? Well, I always try to tell people the the Bible isn't a book. It's a library. It's 66 separate books written in hundreds of years at different times and different authors. And, you know, some of those books are poetry and some of those books are history and some of them are biographies like we see in the Gospels. And so we, we would never go into a library and read every book with the same intentionality. Some things we would read for inspiration and some we would read for information, for example. And so I think we have to come to the Bible and realize what a sprawling, you know, disparate work it is and that we can't just simply open it up to a page and see what's on the page and then, and then take that and, and run with it. We really need to understand the context and the purpose of the writers and the, the, you know, the translation, that we, what we lose in the translation. And the truth is most people who wield the Bible 
as a weapon, they haven't done that work anyway. They haven't really read the Bible fully, or they haven't studied it. It's usually people who are using a shorthand of the Bible who are most likely to do damage with it. And so I just love approaching the Bible as just this, you know, vast library that I can find my story in. I can, you know, read and get inspired, but also, you know, challenge. Yeah, and, and we don't look much at the really root language that is, is, you know, when we study that, that's one of the things we find, and I've, I've talked about that several times on this show before, that we, we find that the root language doesn't say necessarily how it's been traditionally translated. Exactly, and, and for in a culture that is, you know, generally we want something quick and easy, and our religion is no different. And I think when we, as you talk about the, you know, we talk about this, dangerous, toxic, you know, angry religion, a lot of that is due to the fact that there are people who just want to go into a room on a Sunday and have a pastor tell them what God says, and they're not going to question it, and they're not going to dig any deeper, and it's, so it's that, that need for a quick, um, comfortable religion tends to remove a lot of the, the complexity and the nuance and the inconsistencies. I mean, and those are places where that where you talk about the mystery of God. That's where it would show up. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, we would just when I just think about the wonder, the amazement of how huge this universe is. I can't conceptualize a, a small God. That's right, and and I think you know, being a pastor, it's been hard to have people here pastor say things like this, but, you know, the moment we fig- think we figured out God, then God ceases to be God. There has to be mystery and wonder, and there has to be something that we can't quite grasp. And the moment we think we figured it out, well, that's a, that's a place that we don't want to be. We always want to be just, it's, it should be elusive, this idea of the divine. It should be something that we never quite get a handle on. Right, right. It's like I, I look out in the universe and I can't even fathom it. And so why do I think that I can, uh, you know, figure out what God looks like? Yeah, I can barely figure out how my toaster works. And I, you know, there's no way that I'm going to figure out the, the maker of the universe. And that's the other part about it, though. It's the beauty of that we don't have to figure it out. We can just experience God through nature and through relationships and through our work and our, you know, our creative life. And so that's the other part about this is that, that, that can often be the wrong answer. You know, God is not figure-outable, but we can experience the, the beauty of this, of this life and this world and get glimpses of it, and that's really a great thing. I find music does that for me. I see this, I tap into something, you know, intangible when I listen to music or sing music and, or play music, and that's, to me, that's enough of a experience of God, that's of the divine, of this, you know, of the beyond this. Yeah, that's that's another thing. Uh, I know that you talked about cre- creativity, uh, uh, human relationships, and uh, uh, the way we experience the divine. And those are the ways we we experience the divine. One of the things that's uh, being used today uh, is a contemplative relationship to to the divine, and and that's right. some people would call that meditation and yet there's a lot of people that are in the church leaderships in the church that are against meditation and against contemplative relationship to the divine and i, I we just don't have a lot of time left before the break but i just want to kind of touch on that real briefly uh what do you think of yeah, that i 
Well, I, I always read those stories of Jesus in the Gospels where they can't find Jesus, and they say that he's off, you know, the, the writer says that Jesus was in a solitary place praying. And so, and so Jesus models that he's doing all this work, he's in the community, in the world, but yet he's withdrawing to that place where he can have silence and solitude and recenter. And why should we think that we would not have a need for that? And so there's just, there's so much, I call it the engage and withdraw. We engage the world, but we need to constantly withdraw so that we can have those spaces of quiet where a different understanding of the world and of God show up. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's so important. All right. Well, we're going to take another break now. We'll be back in just a few minutes with more from John Pavlovich. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Things Worth Considering, featuring host Gord Riddell and Alexia Georgiousis, is a program that's all about connections. The connections we make with our families, our workplaces, friends, and others around us. It's also about connections to ourself, spirit, feelings, and stories. Let us connect with you each week to explore who we are and what we can be moving forward. We can overcome the obstacles that stand in our way. Things Worth Considering airs live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Empowerment. Tune in each week for Advancing All Women, hosted by Sarah Alter, the President and CEO of Network of Executive Women. Hear top executives and experts talk the most pressing topics for women in the workplace. From advancing women of color to developing and engaging male allies to how to navigate the new workplace post-COVID-19, Sarah will cover it all as she and her guests dig into these key issues. Listen every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Empowerment or catch our replays weekly on Voice America Influencers. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now toll-free. 1-888-346-9141 That's 1-888-346-9141 you can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthews.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back talking today to John Pavlovitz about his book, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk. And the subtitle is Finding a Faith That Makes Us Better Human. And we've had a very interesting discussion about uh, this, uh, the difference between this uh, an image of the divine, the image of God that is uh, full of inclusiveness and love, and an image of the divine that is uh, divisive and hateful. And we're 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 trying to work our way through that now. So, John, you said in the chapter entitled "God Fund Me," I don't believe in a God who withholds miraculous healing or compassionate care until begged by us to do so. I love the way you said that. So, what is prayer really all about? I think growing up, I I was learned prayer the, the same way many people did in the church, and you you prayed to God 
for things, for God to give you things or to do things. And that be, you know, that became problematic as I started to realize, well, I'm praying for someone who's sick to get well as if God is not going to heal them unless I ask. And so it started to really, you know, the moment we do that, then we, I I can remember getting an, an email and they said, we just need more people praying. And I remember thinking, well, is there a tipping point where God would would move that God is not going to heal until we get enough people praying? And and that really humanizes God in a way, makes God sort of petty. And so my prayers have changed. And so I, I, I try not to pray for God to do this or to do that. I just ask God to make me the best version of myself that I can be. And, and I know that I'm placed at this, you know, I'm, I'm in this place in time and history and where can I show compassion? Where can I show generosity? Where can I give love? And those are, those are the ways my prayers have changed. Um, it's a beautiful instinct to pray for other people to get well or to, you know, to weather some difficulty. Um, it's the, the challenge is when we think that God will change God's mind based on us asking, um, that just brings with it a lot of potential problems because you have to decide if, you know, the prayer was answered why why was it and if it wasn't then did we was it our prayers that were somehow inferior um so there's just a lot there there is a lot there and there's also on the flip side of that uh, an idea about the will of god that people will say you know when someone's uh, died and they go to someone who's grieving that loss and they'll say well this was the will of god and you know, I've seen people get really angry or hurt because they somebody said that to them about a loved one, and they can't imagine that it's the will of God that their loved one is gone. So, that's uh, right. yeah, you know that that that's sort of the flip side of this thing about prayer. How do you sort of put those things together? Well, that's the other other thing. You know, we use that phrase. Uh, you know, a lot of people will say everything happens for a reason. It's something that we say. And, and it rolls off our, our tongues real easily until we think about what that actually means. And, and uh, doing some, a lot of thought on that, um, the idea that everything happens for a reason isn't something that I, I subscribe to. I, I think that there is, can be meaning in everything that happens. You know, we have circumstances happen and we have an opportunity in those circumstances to, to live our convictions and to, you know, be better human beings. But I don't believe that, that God is intending to do things through storms or tragedies and all those things. Uh, so I, I consider, you know, when I had this diagnosis with the, the tumor, I, people said, does it make you doubt God? And I, I said, no, I mean, because this is what happens. People have difficulties in this life and it's not God up there controlling all these difficulties to give us a message. I think it's, it's just space for us to be, who we say we are it's and who we believe you know god wants us to be well said very well said i, I mean i think that is it, that's part of the this next question what is the inside job that is the journey of authentic spirituality i think the inside job for me you know it's it's about saying that there there is nothing in the world that i can control other than my response to the world. And, and so spirituality has to be about how am I being renovated? How am I growing so that I can be an agent of mercy or love or compassion in the world? 
I, I can't preach someone else into compassion. I can't argue them into empathy. All I can do is model the kind of person I believe God, whoever that is, is calling me to be. Um, and that would be the beautiful thing if we could just have communities where people are trying to elevate their expression of their beliefs individually, and then we can do that in community as well. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think the journey of authenticity is, uh, our authentic spirituality is, is just that. It's, it's uh, going down inside yourself and experiencing life on life's terms instead of trying to get life to be on your terms. That's true. And, and part of this, I think, you know, we've talked about the idea of oneness a little bit, and that's huge because the more I see myself as interconnected and interdependent on other people, that that's going to always make me more empathetic and kinder. And I, so I think, you know, when we talk about a spirituality that is, that is deep and profound, I think it has to make space for the breadth of, and depth of diversity around us. And so seeing us ourselves as all connected, I mean, that is, that was a huge switch for me as a Christian because so much of what I was taught was, there were the people of God, and then there were the sinners, and there were the damned, and then there were the saved. And then when you can look and say, but we're all just in this together, I think that's a, that's a beautiful way to begin to understand God. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you said in the chapter entitled, High Horses and Better Angels, this, It is often conservative religion's primary engine upon which the whole thing runs. Identify an enemy and go to war certain that you're defending a virtue. That is so true. So what is your remedy for this? I think the remedy is helping people who have been raised in that mindset to realize that it is a, a falsehood, that they're being manipulated. Um, they're, you know, they're being used in another, in, in, for some other means, and that they can they can see that other people are not a threat to them that, you know, one of the lies that I think religion at its worst teaches is that someone else's game is my loss. And you see that in American Christianity, the idea of whether it's healthcare or citizenship or, you know, opportunity that I can't let these people have because then I will have less. And the heart of believing in a, a God of abundance is that there is enough for everyone and that there, there are, I will not be left without just because someone else gets. And those movements toward equity and justice that so many religious people oppose, I mean, those are just, that's just putting the world to the way that it should be, um, that, there, that there is enough for all of us. And I think that idea of abundance is really important. I think it is too. But what do you think about the the churches that are preaching abundance more than love. They're, te- they're te- telling people that if you are a good Christian, you're going to have all your financial needs taken care of. And, you know, all you need to do is be a good Christian and, and think positive thoughts and, and then it'll come your way. What about that? Well, yeah, that, that prosperity gospel or the idea of, of God's favor being a material possessions. I simply look at the, stories in scripture and see that all the people who were following Jesus, they were poor and they didn't have, you know, they, they lived off of the generosity of other people and they had hardships and they had challenges. So faithfulness was not synonymous with comfort. 
or reward. And I think that's where we have just, um, we've Americanized or materialized our faith to think that faith means um, ease or opulence. And really it's just about, you know, what faith does is it guarantees that you will be in the struggles that everyone else is in. You'll just have a different lens through which you see those things. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, I'm glad we talked about that. That was that's an important other piece to this whole dynamic about what's happening in America with Christianity. Right. So, uh, you said you have some discussion questions at the back of the book, which I really love. So, I'm going to ask you one of the, or maybe a couple of the questions that you asked us to go th- to look at. And one of those is, if you were starting a church of not being horrible, how would it be different from most churches? Where you where and where would you start? I, I think I would start with a group of people being together and, and living in relationship and then deciding what a spiritual community would look like. So most of the time, a group of people say, we're going to start a church and it's going to be like this, and they make some decisions, and then they invite people to that church to partake whatever product or whatever you know whatever they've set up. I think the best way would be just to bring a group of people together begin sharing life, begin building relationships, and then finding out what do we care about? What are, where are our places of affinity? What are our connections where we live? You know, what, what causes do we believe in? And then let the community take the shape of the people who are, all, who are starting it rather than just tell them this is what you're signing on for. So I think, but that's a, something that's really difficult because it's going to be messy and it's going to take longer but I think it would reflect the people. You know, I, I think you should start a church in a community and it's going to take the exact shape of those people. Um, whereas like a lot of mega churches will just franchise, they'll set up a franchise in a new city and it really doesn't depend on the people there. It's just about the product. And yeah. so I want an upside down version of that. Yes. And, and what you said there is just a mouthful because it, when you talk about the church being a franchise, that is certainly part of how uh, uh, the toxicity has spread, uh, is that uh, uh, an organized force from above goes into a small town and says, we're going to establish a church here, and it's not, it's not authentic to the people there, but it does, and it might reach out to the people there, but only based on a criteria that's already been set. And it's, yes, and it's very seductive, the idea of, okay, the music's, we were talking about this last night, a friend said he went to this church, and the music was amazing, and the technology was, you know, overwhelming, and they had great buildings and great children's stuff going on, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be beautiful relationships happening there, so it's the really the quieter things that are difficult, because those aren't easily packaged, you know, you can have a life-changing conversation with someone and it's not going to have a lot of bells and whistles and it's hard to, you know, make that into a commodity. So I think that's the other part of this is that we make our churches sort of consumer driven and that's, and that's a slippery slope. Yeah. It seems to be about keeping the church alive rather than reaching out to the people. And it becomes about really the, that attracts a certain group of people and then the crowd attracts the crowd. And so there, there is a, almost a corporate way that church is done. Even, you know, all churches want to grow and they all, they all want to get more people. But what happens is it becomes competitive. And then they're just looking at this one community, you know, there are 20 churches in our 
you know, small little town here, and they're all competing for the same people. And you wonder what what's really <laughs> redemptive about that. Is there a better way? Yeah. Redemptive is such a wonderful word. I love that word because it has everything to do with uh, sort of a, a compassion for where we are and, and, and a carrying to a, a journey to a, to a deeper, wholer, more whole person. That's right. And that's what we're, you know, that's what people of faith, morality, and conscience should be doing. Regardless of their belief system, it should be about, you know, wanting more people to experience wholeness. And that's, you know, if, if religion isn't doing that, then it's the wrong religion. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's a great note to end on. If religion isn't doing that, it's the wrong religion. I think that's a great note to end on. John, I so appreciate you being here with us today, and I really want to encourage the audience to go out and buy this book. If God is love, don't be a jerk. Finding a faith that makes us better humans. This is an excellent read. It will change your thinking about Christianity if you if you are looking for that kind of a journey yourself. Thank you, John, again for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Be well. Uh, You too. All right. We're going to be uh, back again next Wednesday. And remember, your job, should you choose to accept it, is to give birth to yourself. Thanks again for listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Join us again next Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We'll talk again next week 